Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. If you've been wondering why this week's episode's a little late in your feed, um, if you follow me on Instagram at Fertility Body, I shared a little story earlier. I had somebody chopping down a tree outside um, my studio, basically, earlier today. I like to record the intros to the podcast kind of as near to releasing them as possible so you know what's going on in my world um, and the person kind of soaring down this tree was so noisy and it took a good five hours <laughs> hence the delay it's been a bank holiday in the UK for beautiful weather finally August hasn't been great weather wise so this podcast is coming to you a little late what you're getting again if you just found this podcast is a conversation that I had with Kate Davis who I'm now hosting the podcast with it's an interview that we've also shared on UK Health Radio, which Kate and I are now doing. The podcast is going out in loads of different places. And if you've just found the Fertility Podcast, because there's stuff going on with your fertility and you're trying to get your head around it and learn as much as possible and you've been kind of searching for IVF and fertility-related podcasts, I had treatments nearly five years ago. My little boy, Phoenix, um, was the result of ICSI treatment. So I've spent the last five years talking to experts as well as people sharing their stories to make the podcast content for you. And it's changed quite a lot recently. There's loads of episodes for you to kind of go back and have a, a listen to covering all sorts of issues affecting men and women. So hopefully there's something for you. If you like what you hear, please do let me know. You can rate and review it, subscribe and share it, which is always really exciting. So if you've been listening to me for a while or even if you're new, just let me know. It's always really, really good to know whether this is what you want to hear or not and there were some issues about sound which I'm not happy about and um, I just want to explain because we record a lot of these interviews remotely because Kate who I host it with now is in a different place and the people that we talk to are all over the place we're trying to uh, up our game with the technology that we're using which is pretty good but sometimes it sounds a bit odd so um, apologies for that I hope it won't continue and I don't want it to annoy you either. The episode that you're going to hear is a conversation Kate and I had with a nurse at a clinic in London talking about her work helping same-sex couples um, especially with regards to surrogacy and it's a really topical episode because this week um, this episode is going out to you on the 26th of August 2019. This week in Manchester a group of us called Talk Fertility are putting on an event uh, for the LGBTQ community and uh, myself and Mel Johnson, who's the stalker and I on Instagram, we were at Manchester Pride over the weekend, handing out some flyers and chatting to people about the event. Tickets are still available. The link to the Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, or just, if you're on Eventbrite, just type in Talk Fertility and you'll find us. And I suppose the main point of what I'm trying to do with the podcast content and the different things I'm doing out and about in the community is to just help signpost you to where you can find useful information. And I was actually um, at like a little festival yesterday and ended up chatting to a lady who was telling me that she's about to start IVF treatments. She's got access to um, one round of funding with the NHS. She's 42. Her other half is 52. They've been told there's no issue. So that dreaded unexplained label has been given. And she was like, "What? What best? what's the best thing for me to do? And we talked about her nutrition and her lifestyle a little bit. I'm no expert. If you've heard me before, I've just spoke to lots of people and tried to bring those people to you. But I was thinking about whether that really clear guidance on what to do when you're getting ready to start treatment is something of use. I'm going to be doing an episode with Kate about fertility MOTs if you wanted to know more about the test that you're doing. And I think that'll encompass what I've just talked about. I've also seen some conversations about how best to recover from failed fertility treatment if you've just had a round of IVF and like the impact of all the hormones on you. And that's something as well I'm going to develop into an episode. So if there's something that's on your mind, if there's a place that you're at, quite a specific place and you like you can't find kind of answers do please get in touch you can email me natalie at the fertilitypodcast.com 
or DM me on any of the socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy on Twitter and Instagram and the Fertility Podcast has a page. Just tell me the things that you're missing and that's how this content kind of evolves all right so don't be shy there's no stupid questions for now though this is kate and i chatting with francesca you'll hear all our contact details kate answers questions she's answering your fertility questions which is at the end of the episode so be sure to listen and i hope you find it useful as always Hello and welcome to Talk Fertility, a show where we do just that, talk about fertility. I'm Natalie Silverman, host of the Fertility Podcast, which I launched in 2015, once successfully pregnant after having fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, a trained fertility nurse and founder of Your Fertility Journey, where I work one-to-one with women and couples to help them understand and optimise their fertility. So in this week's episode, Kate and I are going to be speaking to another nurse, which if you haven't heard it before, Kate is a trained nurse and now has a number of different hats that she wears in her work in the fertility world. And um, we're going to be talking to a lady called Francesca Stein from the CRGH, which is a big clinic in London, the Centre for Reproductive and Genetic Health. Is it always nice kind of getting to talk to a fellow nurse, Kate, about that? It's like talking shop, isn't it? It is. And I have to confess, before we um, started recording, we did talk about where each other trained in London and various bits and pieces and where we work. So, yeah, it, it is kind of quite nice for me to chat to other nurses because as I don't necessarily work in a team all the time I don't get to do that very often so it was lovely chatting to her finding about all the things that she's doing she's a hugely busy lady and also finding more about the seed project that she's involved with which is really interesting. Well have a listen to Francesca we quizzed her on all the work she does regarding surrogacy as well as Kate mentioned the seed trust and her work helping people kind of navigate their way through using donors and also she mentioned some key organizations for you to go and find out more information about. Enjoy. So we're now going to welcome Francesca Stein who's the head of nursing at the CRGH which is the Centre for Reproductive and Genetic Health to the show. Hi, Francesca. Hello. Hi, Francesca. So first of all, I must say congratulations on your nomination as Surrogacy Professional of the Year for the Surrogacy Awards, which is really exciting. That's just happened Surrogacy Awareness Week, hasn't it? Yep. Thank you. Was it a surprise nomination? I mean, it's obviously great to be recognised for the work that you're doing. It was actually. I, I won the award last year when they ran the awards in 2018. And that was a huge surprise. I didn't even know I'd been nominated. And actually, I didn't know I'd been nominated again this year. Um, I just think, you know, it's just my job to you know, help people on their surrogacy journeys. So it is, you know, it is amazing to be nominated. And I feel very honoured that um, people think that I'm that good at my job to nominate me for an award. And when do you find out? When when are the awards? Yeah, it went to public vote, so this week they'll announce who the winners are. Okay, so we're talking kind of mid-August, so maybe once we share the episode, we'll know if you've won. Yep. Hopefully. Oh, fingers crossed. fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed, Francesca. That's amazing. So tell us a bit about your role then at the CRGH as far as what you do from the nursing point of view. And I know that you wear kind of different hats there. Yep, so um, I'm the head of nursing, so we've got a very big nursing team because we offer so many specialist services, really. We're part of a, a project, so we've got a lot of genetics and a lot of donation, obviously surrogacy. So there's a big, large team of us, and I'm the lead for the team. But I'm also the lead for the clinical governance and quality currently. 
So to make sure that we're up to date with all our regulatory stuff with the HFEA and to make sure that all our audits are up to date and, and those sort of things, really. And then, obviously, I, I manage the surrogacy programme also. Wow, Francesca, you've got a huge role. I don't know, that must, that must take up an awful lot of your time. And it does, yeah. And we're, we're a really busy clinic. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. You know, I like to be busy, though, and that's always been my thing to keep busy. And I like to be able to support the team and, and in various roles. So how long have you been working in kind of surrogacy? And, and how have you seen that role change since you've been working in the field? So... Um, I originally started when I offered, when I qualified in 2005, I think. I worked as an HIV nurse, and I was oh. in, then I worked in a sexual health clinic, and then I gained a really interest in, in women's health and, and, and gynaecology, and there was an opening that came up to be part of the fertility clinic at Chelsea and Westminster, a part of the sperm washing program for patients with bloodborne viruses. So I applied, and, 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 I, and I got the job, and I just loved it. I fell in love with fertility. So I, I worked there for a while, so I was in the NHS, and, and then moved on to become a sister at, at Bart's Fertility. And, and then from there, I went over to the London Women's Clinic and um, was involved in the surrogacy programme, the donation programmes. And that's when I fell into surrogacy, really. And then around that time, it was around 2009, I think, and it, and it was just before same-sex men were able to, in 2010, when they were able to apply for parental orders, so that's when um, I started to get really involved in, in, in the programmes and, and developing big surrogacy programmes really to support LGBT patients, but also obviously heterosexual patients going through and still raise awareness. Hmm. So have you seen a big increase in, in kind of surrogacy then while you've been working the field or you know, absolutely. what's your kind of impression? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it started off where I was you know, seeing maybe one surrogacy journey team every three months and now you know I'm seeing maybe 10 so it's 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 grown it's really grown because it's still something that we kind of don't really you know it's we don't really talk about so much in the UK I know um in the US for example you know it seems to be a lot bigger thing um do you think that's changing then that we it's something that will become more commonplace absolutely and I think with with the work of the law reform and 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 the organisations that are, you know, plugging away to raise awareness and even the clinics, you know, clinics are more aware. Lots of people before thought it was too difficult and complex to arrange surrogacy programmes and but now people a lot more people are on board. The HFA have, you know, updated their code of practice to provide more guidance on surrogacy. So it is it's a changing world and I I think that where it used to be, you know, sometimes an end stage treatment, now it's very much a first line treatment being offered to, to people. So just talk a bit more about what people thinking about this maybe about surrogacy need to think about when it comes to choosing a clinic because I mean there's so many different factors to consider so if somebody's at the point where they're you know this is part of what their family looks like what's your kind of guidance as far as you know working with a clinic choosing a clinic what to look out for what to expect well, I think it's it's really important to have to make sure that the clinic has got experience in surrogacy because it can be quite straightforward and, and it's you know straightforward if there is a, a program in place. But if people are not used to managing surrogacy arrangements, then there may be things that are missed. You know, in terms of consent forms, you know, the screening that's required, pointing people in the right direction for legal advice, things like that. So, 
I think it's the first step would be to make sure that you do your homework a bit, have a look on the HFDA website to see which clinics um, operate surrogacy programs, you know, how long they've been offering them, um, if they've got a dedicated team that, you know, are part of a surrogacy team and, uh, you know, and who've got the expert knowledge behind them. When it comes to people coming to the clinic and embarking on a surrogacy journey, obviously the, the, the length of time varies so much. So as far as managing people's expectations, that's obviously a, a huge role for you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, because everyone does have a different idea of how they want to proceed. People come when they are going to just freeze maybe some sperm create and create some embryos and then go and find a surrogate. And then other people come already in a team. So they've already got their surrogate with them and they're ready to start ASAP. So it's you, you do have to manage expectations and you do have to let people know that there's quite a few points that we need to go through in order to um, get everyone ready and create the embryos. And so the embryo transfer for the surrogate can take place. So there's a number of steps. But it's, you know, if you, from the get-go, if you are open, and this is what I do, is I sit with the IPs and then the surrogate and go through everything and be really open and transparent about what's required, then I think people, you know, find that that's really quite helpful. With the whole kind of legalities and paperwork side of it Mm -hmm. then, is there guidance from the clinic? Because I know that can be quite overwhelming when you have to think about that stuff. I mean, it is quite tricky and... I think it does come down with experience on how you manage all of that. I mean, we've got a very watertight protocol here, like a clinical protocol, which I wrote with two of the senior consultants to make sure that we're following everything in terms of the code of practice. We've also taken advice from a surrogacy lawyer. Uh, But yeah, it it can be quite tricky and it can be quite daunting, especially for people coming through for, for treatment. It can be a bit of a minefield for them. So, you know, you need to understand it from A to Z really and to be able to interpret it and and, and provide reassurance because it it can be quite daunting. So it's obviously really important to have great information out there for patients to read and find out about their options Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I know you're heavily involved with and just seems so interesting and exactly what is needed out there a place for patients to go is the Seed Trust Uh project. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, your involvement with it and what, what, you know, where patients can find it, what they can find out about it, how it can help them? So last year I became a trustee for the Seed Trust and it used to be the National Gamete Donation Trust. And there was a call for new trustees to join the charity and for us to relaunch it, really revamp it and relaunch it. Because the intent is for, you know, to provide support, guidance, information for donors, intended parents, donor-conceived people, um, and anyone that's looking to use um, donor gametes in their treatment. So there's a team of us that work together. We have regular meetings to look at how we can support and provide guidance for people on these journeys. And the website has was relaunched very recently at Fertility Vest and we've got some fantastic videos on there and resources for um, currently for egg donors we're looking for more sperm donors to share their journeys with us and there's a lot of resources you know on different aspects of different parts of the journey so included for intended parents and surrogates anyone you know looking to find out information about donation. Yeah, it looks such an interesting website. I'm just looking at it now as we're chatting and there's just so much information there. I'm definitely going to use it to signpost my patients to because I'm always asked this question about where they can get information and it's always uh-huh. been quite difficult to find somewhere that is 
really unbiased and independent to be able to provide that impartial advice. So it looks amazing. We'll definitely put all of that information in the in the show notes so that people can find out about it. So Francesca, when it comes to choosing whether to have treatment in the UK or abroad in terms of whether you're using a donor or in terms of surrogacy, I know that there's been quite a shift back to the UK. I know there's obviously a number of organisations in the UK. Do you think people are becoming more kind of comfortable staying home and they're understanding more about the benefits of staying home rather than travelling abroad for these types of treatments? I think so, actually. I I have seen a change. I mean, reproductive tourism is still going to be a huge thing, I think. And, you know, it's all about patient choice and what they think will work best for them and and their journeys. But I do think that, you know, the awareness and the work that's being done in the UK at the moment um, is, you know, giving people more information and, and the tools and resources to be able to stay in the UK for their treatment, especially, you know, with regards to donation for surrogacy, for recipients and the work that the Donor Conception Network do also to support recipients. There's a lot going on in the UK and there are a lot more donors actually signing up to donate. So people don't necessarily need to go away abroad for um, let's say egg donation anymore because it's becoming more and more available in the UK. And is that sperm and egg donors? I think so, yeah. I've, I've seen a change. We've got a big egg donation programme anyway, but we've got a lot, have a lot of inquiries more recently from sperm donors also. Okay, and what about the LGBTQ community? What's kind of your experience working with that community and how have you seen that change over recent years? So I think um, since 2010, when uh, same-sex couples could apply for parental orders I think that changed quite a lot and we saw more same-sex couples accessing surrogacy as as a form of you know creating their families same-sex females have always you know I think been able to access certain clinics for different treatment types and especially you know there is always you know quite a lot of donor sperm available if you import or use a UK donor so in terms of you know, what sort of treatment is right for, for you, there's, you know, there's always been availability, but I do think it's on the on the rise. LGBTQ communities are more supported with their options to, to parent. And I think more clinics are definitely, you know, supporting people from the community to, to have children and have programmes in place. That's, that's really interesting. So one of my next questions actually was, is what awareness is out there regarding the options for that type of community? So, you, you you mentioned the fact that you felt they're more supportive and, and what way are they more supported? So I think there's a lot of work that's been done by Stonewall and various organisations that you know are supporting LGBTQ people. There's organisations that are supporting the trans community and their fertility preservation and options for future parenting. There's a lot of, you know, support in the various surrogacy organisations for LGBTQ people going down the route of surrogacy and donation to parent. So I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of resource and networks out there that are, are now seeing that, you know, to raise awareness, it's, it's, you know, it's fantastic to be raising awareness and support for people for them, from the community, but also to let them know that these are their options if they do want to proceed with a family and, you know, from adoption, surrogacy, donation, all of those things, that there's availability, co-parenting. There is a lot of work that's been done by um, organisations and I think, you know, in collaboration with people like Stonewall and Diva and other LGBT organisations that are supporting the process for parenthood. Would you say, therefore, there's, a, there's less support than for heterosexual couples than there is 
the LGBTQ community. I only say that because I, I see it being seen to be discussed less of an, an option. I'm not sure if, if there is less. I think that maybe it seems less because there is more awareness for LGBTQ. But I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done for heterosexual couples going through treatment. You know, I mean, there's some fantastic resources out there and you know, things like Fertility Fest and the Fertility Network. But there is still a lot more work that we can do to, you know, to promote all people accessing fertility treatment and fertility services. Well, a big part of it is normalising these conversations. You mentioned Fertility Fest and mm-hmm. um, I mean, that kind of activity of making this conversation accessible to people in different ways, because it's obviously an arts festival as well as having an expert conversation happening. But then I know that you're involved with the work of like Two Daddies UK who do a big amount of work to get the conversation happening for gay men wanting to parent and go down the, the UK surrogacy route. Do you think that we are making headway with that normalizing i know we've talked a lot about it quite a bit already but from mm-hmm. these kind of shifts especially with like social media you're part of the like the online community do you find it exciting the kind of conversations that are now happening yeah absolutely and it is being normalized you know and accepted which is amazing to see i mean i want my children to grow up you know knowing that you know it's completely okay if they need to have IVF whether that being a heterosexual or you know they're in a same-sex relationship or they do it as a single person I think that's what my hopes are and I and I do see that change happening where you know that it is being more normalized and, and accepted yeah I agree you know I think IVF is no longer this weird kind of not weird but a wonderful yeah kind of of treatment it's something that people whisper about when you hear other people having it whether it be somebody in the street or a friend or whatever it's now seems just so much more commonplace which is tragic in a way isn't it tragic that it it has to be that way but certainly you know I think everybody knows somebody who is either had IVF or going through IVF or had a baby born through IVF Absolutely. Wherever you go, you know, if someone asks me what I do, you know, you've got guaranteed someone knows someone that's been through it or someone who's going through it and asks questions and things like that. So what do you see, Francesca, the main challenges that you've still got to kind of overcome? There's there's these different organisations now. The Seed Trust is obviously trying to signpost people to where there's more information about these different treatments and, and routes to parenthood. But is there a kind of burning issue that you think is being overlooked still as far as these different elements that, you know, we need when it comes to making modern families? I still think that there is a lot of work to be done. We do still need to keep raising awareness. But I think the huge thing that um, affects all of us is the funding status in the UK. I mean, it's still very much seen as if you want to have a family by, you know, alternative parenting, let's say, and you need a surrogate to do so, or you need a donor, then it's still very much that you have to self-fund your own treatment. And, you know, it's expensive. Not everyone's available to able to spend that sort of money on treatment to create their families. So I think more work needs to be done about the funding, you know, not just for heterosexual couples that can't access funding for IVF, but also, you know, other people that need fertility treatment in order to create their families and not being able to access funding. One of the things that I've been learning more about is funding for fertility preservation, especially within trans patients. I know of a CCG in Sussex that I think is now adding that into the mix, but is that something that you're aware of CCGs maybe changing 
their stance on it at all? I know it's it's such a contentious issue still. Yeah, I mean, we are actually. We're seeing it more and more. So we work very closely with RMU over at UCLH. They have a lot of people that are referred from the Tavistock for facility preservation before they're transitioning. So we see more and more of those people coming through. And some of them are being funded. They've been funded by different CCGs. And I think one of the very good ones is actually Camden. They, they're funding for um, facility preservation for, for trans people. And so it's it's on the rise. And I think, you know, it's the way forward. You know, we should be able to offer that to people. I received an email yesterday, Francesca, from the RCN. And for people mm-hmm. that don't understand the RCN, both Francesca and I will most, most likely, I'm assuming, Francesca, you are um, a member of the Royal, Royal College of Nursing. And I received an email, which I was really interested to see. I've not had anything like this before about their fertility preservation workshops that are taking yeah. place for professionals, which I think is fantastic. It looks like there are four different locations, London, Edinburgh, Birmingham and Cardiff. And it looks fantastic because I think that we definitely need to get more awareness amongst professionals out there about fertility preservation because I still think it's you know it's it's not known a great deal about so having that information and knowledge so that you can give that information on to your your patients are you involved with that yeah so those are the fertility preservation workshops a few years ago we um was on part of the committee for the fertility nurses forum the steering committee so we put together a document and a publication on fertility preservation and it's on the back of that. So we've collaborated with Beaker to put together a series of workshops to provide information about fertility preservation. Obviously, not always just fertility nurses, because a lot of us are seeing this day in and day out. But for people working in general practice, you know, oncology clinics and things like that, to, so they can signpost and know a bit more about what's available to their patients that are needing to preserve their fertility for some medical reasons, really. I had a really interesting conversation with a trans man who had talked about how their GP was amazing in the yeah. process because they had the awareness. But if there isn't that awareness of what options are available, then it can make the conversations awkward, can't it? Because the whole idea of having to have some potentially invasive treatments that could have all sorts of implications with regards to you know the physical size of it and if your gp is not even on that page it all becomes even they become even more obstacles don't they so we, we, we want those conversations hopefully to be more common in the gp surgery for then the referrals to happen because there's a time element when it comes to transitioning isn't there yeah absolutely you're right so from the very first point of discussion you know this is available to you explaining that you can preserve your fertility so that when people do start you know hormone therapies or you know go down the route of gender reassignment surgery they've already been given the information so they can think about these options at the very beginning the very early stages I mean we've just started to dabble in what is a a really lengthy conversation for Mm -hmm. another time and I know that there's probably more information again on the seed trust about advice and guidance is is that a good place to signpost or should we send everybody to the the main CRGH website if these conversations have provoked um you know more questions for people listening yeah I mean obviously we're we're a large clinic and we've got a lot of information on our page but we have to collaborate with other clinics and other services so seed trust the donor conception network is always a great one to to look at we've got lots of things on the RCN page, so the Royal College of Nursing and the HFEA, you know, all of these organisations, Surrogates UK, those sort of places to, to get further information. I mean, because, you know, we have to work as a team to, to make sure everyone's receiving the right information and, and 
what's available to them. So in terms of egg and sperm donation in the UK, because I know a lot about kind of banks in Europe and international sperm and egg banks, and I know that we have resources in the UK, but am I right in thinking that we need more? We need more people to come forward and donate? Yes, absolutely, because we've got some wonderful people that do come forward and donate, and we're able to offer donation treatments to many people in the UK, but, you know, the people still need to come forward. We still don't have as many donors as other countries do, and we need to keep plugging away and raising awareness so that people can come forward and donate and to normalise it. You know, it's not a, a, a completely easy thing to do. You do have to think about it. I mean, I donated my eggs last year, and it was, you know, two weeks of injections and things like that, but that two weeks of my life, could possibly change someone else's so I think just to get it out there to say you know it's it's it can be a little bit of a difficult process but you know you can change someone's life and we need more people to come through and say yeah I'm able to do that for you. So Francesca just so people are aware is there an age cutoff point what do they need to consider if they are thinking about donating? There is some criteria you need to be between the ages of 18 and 35 this is for egg donors you need to be fit and healthy and free from any genetic or hereditary condition, non-smokers, you know, just generally fit and healthy and able to donate. And that's the egg donors. But the sperm donors, they can be up to the age of 45, but some clinics will have different policies in place. But the same criteria, you know, free from hereditary conditions and, and any genetic conditions and, and healthy. Francesca, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Francesca. It's been so interesting. Do keep listening as Kate will be answering one of your questions very shortly. Now, one of the things that I like to do as host of the Fertility Podcast is share with you here on Talk Fertility episodes from my back catalogue because I've now shared over 200 episodes, loads of different conversations with people at all different stages of their fertility journeys as well as experts. And as we were talking with Francesca about surrogacy, I wanted to share an excerpt of a conversation I had with two dads, Mike and Wes. They have a really strong kind of presence online as Two Dads UK, where they basically are on a mission to raise awareness of same-sex parenting. Now, in this conversation, you'll hear Mike and Wes talk about their surrogacy journey. And what I can tell you is they've just welcomed into their family their second baby through a surrogacy, a little baby boy, which is lovely news. And I'll tell you how you can follow them after this little snippet. We started our treatment back at the end of sort of 2015. We have a daughter through UK surrogacy, gestational surrogacy. So we we had anonymous egg donor and uh, a surrogate in the UK. And that's when our fertility journey started and our daughter was born in 2016. And that's then when we began to go public, I guess, and start banging the drum a little bit more about same-sex parenting and surrogacy in the UK. So that initial stages of deciding that you're going to go ahead, you want to become parents and you're going to go down the surrogacy route, finding your surrogate, how easy was that? It started off being a bit of a minefield. So we... We had a good two, three years of researching surrogacy generally before we decided to go through the UK. So we we explored international surrogacy um, and it, it just didn't feel right for us. There were a number of issues or complications. There was a, a cost was a massive factor, um, certainly for the US. 
Uh, but we did look at the likes of India and Nepal and Thailand and Guadalajara in Mexico. Um, but for a number of reasons, really, the, the exit process uh, was a bit sketchy um, and or it just wasn't a viable route for surrogacy, particularly for same sex. So we um, we opted to, to go down the UK route. And we then started looking at all of the places where we could uh, engage with surrogates. And we, we looked at the, the not-for-profits that are in the, the space. So there are, there are three. And we had conversations with those. But at that particular point in 2015, when we were really ramping up to start, there was a block on intended parents registering because there was just a... a it was out of sync with the number of intended parents and the number of surrogates that were wanting to help intended parents. And was that across the three agencies, you've, the, the three organisations you've just mentioned? It was, it, it was, it was, a, it was definitely across two. Right. Our preferred, I guess out of the three, we, we really formed a, a liking and a bond to Surrogacy UK. Yeah. Such great guys over there. And we, we you know, we, we networked with them sort of on the phone initially and, and a meeting. But we then, because of that particular uh, issue, we decided to, to what they call go independent. So finding a surrogate and matching ourselves. And at this point, had any of your friends gone down this route? Were you able to talk with them or was this just finding your feet and carving the path out, just the two of you at this point? At the time, uh, we actually didn't know anyone. Uh, gone through this process and I think we just kind of ventured out on our own and kind of just do what we thought we needed to do to make it happen and you know we learned a lot along the way there was a lot of hurdles that we didn't anticipate but I think that that's kind of what drives us more now to uh, really want to kind of help people because you know like Michael mentioned we we first initially our first when we talked about surrogacy our first instinct was international yeah and I think it's about raising the profile that it doesn't necessarily need to be international now if you have a preference now and an international is an option for you then and if it feels right for you then perfect but we quickly learned that it really wasn't for us and then we started exploring the the UK route and there was a lot of challenges along the way that we experienced right from start to end we managed to get over all of them and it shaped how our journey was, but that's really one of the driving forces for trying to help people post our journey to try and, and help make sure that people don't have to encounter some of the challenges we, we had. And of course, going down our next journey, we're much wiser and a lot more experienced. So. We're hoping that this one will be a little bit more smooth sailing, shall we say. Yeah, well, let's hope so. I mean, in an earlier episode in this particular series, I spoke to a brilliant lawyer called Lois who talks about some of the issues that can happen when it comes to surrogacy law. She was talking about fertility law not being fit for purpose. And I know that there's been constant um, efforts to reform surrogacy law. You've been involved. Let's talk a little bit about, because I want to hear about some of the challenges, but let's just talk a bit about your involvement. You're in Parliament. We're talking at the start of February. You were in Parliament, October 2018, with Andrew Percy and the All-Party Parliamentary Group. Tell me about that experience, because it's brilliant and I know really empowering for you guys, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And it was such an honour to have been recognised for the work that we do for Two Dads UK. So it was, to, first of all, to be asked was, you know, we were 
I guess the platform had been raised and we were on the radar. Um, and then we were called upon to give our lived experience um, as two parents through UK surrogacy. Um, so we, we went along in October and we met Andrew and, and there was a the particular day that we were in, there were a number of um, intended parents, there were healthcare professionals uh, and singles and other individuals from the, you know, really representing surrogacy uh, and some international and some some UK. Um, so to, to, to get that initial platform and to be invited was was incredible. And as far as some of the challenges that you managed to overcome, do you want to give me some examples? The glaringly obvious issue with where the current surrogacy law is, is outdated is around the parental order. Yeah. So obviously for those that aren't aware, when you have a child through UK surrogacy, uh, or the parental order process applies to if you're having a child internationally, mm. you still need to go through the PO process. But the, where the law's slightly out of kilter here is that the surrogate and their husband, if they're married, are the legal parents of your child when that child is born, which is bonkers, obviously. Mm. So you have to go through the parental order process. Um, what we would like to see is that parental order process similar to how it is in the States and that paperwork can be submitted at point of conception um, and that the parental order can be granted at birth rather than currently you have to wait till your child's six weeks and one day old and then your paperwork can go into the to the court. And the ridiculous thing about that, of course, is if there's any medical treatment needed or just any issue, then you're not the official parent. It's just insane, isn't it? It is, and, that, and I think that's one of the scary things for yeah. us is and it's something that we needed to really outline and plan for right from the start. And that's some, some of the advice we would give to intended parents about uh, making sure that everyone's on the same page and planning. But as an example, is if when our child was born they needed any kind of specialist care mm. the hospital trust would need consent from the surrogate so it's 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 a challenge just to make sure that uh, all of those things are in in place beforehand and it's quite scary when you realize that you could potentially uh, be out of that control yeah. and even it being your child you wouldn't have that that consent which you know is is something that it's a, it's 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 kind of a worst case scenario but you need to plan for everything and that's probably one of our biggest mm -hmm. uh, pieces of advice yeah. to the intended parents going through this process is plan for everything and make sure that you and all parties involved are on the same page and you all have everything principally agreed in advance and one of the points that lois uh, the lawyer i mentioned raised was the ideal is to have a single surrogate so that then you are the biological, the sperm donor, not that you use a sperm donor because it was, I'm assuming your sperm, you were the biological father if it was a single surrogate. So am I right to say that you had a, your surrogate was married? She was, yeah. So with that in mind, just talking about your sperm, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> go for it. That process, I mean, did you both have a go? No, and I think this was really straightforward for us, wasn't it, Wes, really? Yeah, I mean, for, for I have a, a daughter from a previous straight marriage. Yes. Uh, She's 14 now. So for us, that topic of conversation around, we like to call it, who's the daddy, yeah. uh, is uh, was actually quite straightforward because uh, I already had a biological child and uh, I wanted Michael to have that same kind of experience. So it was a really straightforward conversation for us. But I think 
we now know other people who are going through this process and trying to agree who will go first if you like yeah. it's it's quite a challenging topic and it can cause uh, quite fric- it can be quite frictious in some some relationships because mm. i've worked with surrogates uk and i know in one of the conversations i was having with a surrogate and she was working with a gay couple they were the, the guys were alternating months to to see because i don't think they could reach the decision of who it was going to be so it was you know whoever whoever it works with yeah so i know that Tallulah, your first child through surrogacy that that worked first time was that the first round of treatment is that right yeah we were really lucky so we 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 transferred an embryo transfer on the 13th of february 2016 and yeah two week wait came and we we were pregnant and she was born 30 at 38 weeks in october 2016 so was it was a breeze work first time and a, and, a, and a great pregnancy so we were really fortunate and you found that surrogate like you say independently so you were i'm assuming in facebook groups or were you given some advice from some of the surrogacy associations that you'd been speaking with initially yeah we we had and we took a lot of the surrogacy uk model to how we approached this which is very much isn't friendship first isn't it a- absolutely that so we before we started treatment us and our surrogate we maintained a friendship for 11 months before we started any treatment yeah great so you know we met her kids we met her husband katie met her you know as our daughter met met their family and we'll just let that develop because it had to feel right and with that friendship had to be exactly tight so that was the friendship path that we that we took with our surrogate and you know we took the advice that we had from the likes of surrogacy uk and and i guess we we adapted it we we still followed we took legal advice we drafted an intention agreement jointly with our surrogate we went into this, you know, bolts and braces, and and uh, uh, yeah, and that that was that was how we how we went. And I know that you also put an emphasis on the guidelines for healthcare professionals about how to treat surrogates and IPs, because I heard just ridiculous stories of handovers in car parks and just the hospital staff not getting their head around, you know, the the baby handover, which sounds just the wrong way to to describe it. What was your experience like? Well, unfortunately, our experience uh, in the planning stages looked like it was heading in that direction. Uh, We quite early on engaged with, with our trust, started working through what the birthing plan would look like. And we quickly realised that the, the the trust policies weren't aligned with what we expected our experience to be. So we our expectation wasn't anything, you know, wild. We mm. just wanted to have the same experience as any other couple having children. We wanted to, it to be as straightforward as possible. We wanted our surrogate to be considered and made sure she was comfortable and, and looked after uh, and we wanted it just to be, we, we wanted to walk out with our child, mm. with the balloons, into the car park and go home mm. like anyone else does. And we didn't for a second think we wouldn't have had, had that experience. But when we started walking through the birthing plan, it became quite apparent that we weren't going to get what we wanted or what we expected. So we kind of came away from that initial meeting and kind of tried to digest exactly what they were proposing to us. And at that time, I remember having a conversation with Michael saying, it just doesn't feel right. It's it's not fair and it doesn't feel right. What were they so, proposing? Well, they were proposing things like we would have to hand over the, baby our baby car in the car park. 
God, it yeah. frustrates off hospital me so premises. Much. You know, it is this naughty, sordid thing. It's insane. Yeah, it was, and and there were a number of things really, just with you know our presence on the maternity ward. I think I think that people don't realise that there are some little things to us that are really important that may seem quite insignificant to other people. So, for instance, for us. The name tag of our child being in our name when that baby's born mm. was really important for us. For them, it just didn't see. Oh, it had to be, uh, you know, the surrogate's uh, name and the bit. And we were like, but that's not that. That won't be our baby's name. So, it, 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 although it seems quite trivial, things it was a real. Some of these things were really important to us, and it's things like us having access to our child straight after, mm. and things like in theory, because our surrogate had an elective cesarean we weren't at that point able to see our child being born which you know now we look back on it it's not fair i mean fortunately when the, the birthing plan that we agreed was that we'd be in the side room and then uh, our surrogate's husband would bring the baby through mm. to us and that's at the, our first contact but what happened was when our surrogate went into labor and she was being prepped for surgery she asked the surgeon if we could come in and see it which we didn't expect and we we you know we agreed but we were allowed into theatre and we saw Tallulah being born, which was an amazing experience. Yeah. And one we'll never forget and we're, we're grateful for. But on the top side of all this is when we left that initial planning meeting around our birthing plan and we said to each other this wasn't right, we then took legal advice. And what happened as a, as a kind of a consequence from that is that our legal team did intend to sue the trust on grounds of discrimination because there were there were multiple points at which they were discriminating against us. Mm. I mean, it's really good to hear that you had really kind of methodically thought it through. You sought advice, which is the advice that Lois gives, is to really be clear at the outset of every eventuality so that, you know, you are covered. And to, to be bold enough to stand your ground and... I know that's a big part of the work that you're doing now is to help others overcome these these challenges which sadly do continue. From that experience you're now in a very exciting place where you're expecting your second child through a surrogate so be third in your family. Are you working with the same surrogate? We are yeah same surrogate. She always agreed when we had Tallulah that she would want to do a sibling journey for us. Right. Yeah that's just tremendous. So uh, this time um, it was Wes's turn. <laughs> this pregnancy um, is biologically Wes's, whereas Tallulah was was mine. So great that we're we're so lucky and fortunate to be pregnant again um, after the AFAL transfer last summer. Um, this transfer was successful that took place in December. So, so this time around, obviously, we've used Wes's sperm, same surrogate. We started on this journey sort of last year, didn't we? Start of yeah. the year. Yeah. And then we had a transfer in June, and unfortunately, that, that didn't take. So we took the decision to have a, a little break. We had a sort of four, three, four months out, and we change clinics we moved our clinic to a to a london-based clinic we were with a manchester-based clinic and we then continued our treatment had our eggs all retrieved and fertilized which was we had some good results there and then we transferred in december and then our two-week wait fell on new year's eve wow. um, i know but uh, we we got the we got the pink line that that everyone wants which was fantastic news 
So as promised, details of how you can follow Mike and Wes on Instagram. Their uh, handle is at twodads.u.k and they're brilliant. They're so proactive. So do go find out more about them if you want to get in touch with them or their information is there. Now, one of the things that Kate and I like to do with this Talk Fertility show is to answer your questions. You can email us at talkfertility at gmail.com. And a couple of weeks ago, we shared an episode about male infertility. Well, we actually shared a couple. We shared a chat with Rod Silvers, which you can still hear in the archives, and also a conversation with Gareth James. He was talking about his failed male fertility treatments. As a result, we've had quite a few emails and... Mm. It is something that I'm really passionate about in the work I do in my fertility podcast to put that spotlight on male fertility issues. And it's brilliant to know that it's, it's, it's helping and it's working because, as I've said, we've had some emails asking for more advice, really. So, Kate, what have we got? We've had a couple of emails from um, men, actually. It's fantastic that men are writing in. And I think, like you say, it's been really well received, the two episodes that we did to shine this light on, on male fertility. And uh, the couple of questions we've had is regarding lifestyle aspects and what they could do to improve their lifestyle. Now, both these men say that they're generally pretty fit, they don't smoke, they're not big drinkers, they're physically active, and their partners are also the same. You know, so very nice, healthy lifestyles. So we just wanted to know if there's anything else that they need to consider. And I think the thing that is concerning most professionals working in the field of fertility at the moment with regards to men is the use of protein shakes. So we're seeing a definite correlation with protein shake use and problems with sperm parameters. So I think I would definitely say, you know, if you're using the gym, fantastic, absolutely continue with that, but please stop taking protein shakes. Make your own. There's nothing that a good banana, a bit of milk or almond milk, whatever you fancy, and some berries chucked in after would work out. That's kind of all you need. But definitely avoid the protein shakes, the powders that you can purchase from some weird and wonderful internet sites because we're not sure what's in those, whether there's actually a little bit of trace of steroid or whatever, we don't know. But it does seem to be having a, a quite a devastating effect on sperm. I mean, one thing on that, if the thought of that is like, no way, my fitness needs that support. One thing that my other half did was found a pea-based protein in the shakes he was using. So there wasn't any soy, because I know that there's some Mm. question about soy. Um, Mm -hmm. But we will share some more links in the show notes to some of the conversations that have been had about these protein shakes. Some of the experts, there's Professor Alan Pacey, who's spoken quite a lot about this. There was something recently that the BBC had had um, shared some research that have been done. So we'll, we'll aim to, to share those reference points for you. And again, keep questions coming in at talkfertility at gmail.com so we can hopefully continue to answer them. Thanks for listening and don't miss next week's show. So you also heard there an extra chat with Mike and Wes from Two Dads UK. Their details will be in the show notes for this episode, which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash Manchester Pride because I couldn't think of anything else to call it right now. Do have a look. If you're on the move when you're listening to this, then the latest episode is always in my um, Instagram feed at FertilityPoddy or if you just go to thefertilitypodcast.com, you can hear the latest episode and subscribe. As I said at the start, if you can rate and review, subscribe and share this podcast, then that helps other people find out about what it is I'm doing. Thanks as always for your support and until the next time, 